Good morning. It's great to see you. Don't you love being part of church? I mean, I just, just seeing all these folks up here and knowing the experiences that they've enjoyed. Oh, man. I love it. I love it. So, hey, let me read for one last time for you a description of Jesus' church that Luke gave us in Acts chapter 2 as we finish out our series called Ecclesia. We are Ecclesia today. Just listen, if you would, as I read this scripture once again. And it reads like this, Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful description of your ecclesia, your very first church. Lord, we're grateful to be able to look into the word and and see this model, this pattern. And I pray that even today, Lord, you would enable us to glean from it the things that you have for us together as a community of believers and individually. We trust you now for that. May the ministry of the Spirit be active among us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And you can take the uh, little study guide out of your worship folder so you can follow along with us. And you know that what I just read is a description of the ecclesia lifestyle of the very first church, the church at Jerusalem. In the first century that sprang into existence through the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And today we finish up this series and in a way I'm kind of sad about that because I love talking about the church. One man said there's nothing quite like the church when it's working right. And I agree with that. And I think it's been a healthy thing for us to look into the scriptures and see Jesus' church as he intended it to be. And as we've said, here in Acts, Luke lays out the the prototype, the model, the pattern. And through the Spirit's guidance, we've been seeking out the timeless principles of Jesus' church that every ecclesia in every generation should seek to emulate, including us right here at New Life. And to do that, we've been using an acrostic, Jesus' church, and we'll just see how that's been working for us. We've covered these so far. J stands for Jesus-centered Bible preaching and teaching, that was a part of that early church and a part of this church. We talked about emotional worship and saved church members and underwater baptism, sin repenting and communion, J-E-S-U-S-C. And so today we pick up with the H in church. You say, what does that stand for? Huge, huge generosity. Huge generosity generosity. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That is a description of huge generosity. I've been giving you a big idea, a big theological idea under each of these headers, and the big concept here is the generosity of Jesus. Whenever you hear of or experience the generosity of Jesus' people, always think back to its source, Jesus, right? There is no one more generous than Jesus, amen? 
I mean, think about all the gifts Jesus has given us. He's given us this world that we live in with all of its beauty and all of its resources that meet our needs. Then he gave mankind the gift of his presence by coming from heaven to earth, putting on a robe of human flesh, being among us. He gave, as you know, his very life to pay our sin debt. And then rising from the grave, he gave us his righteousness and the Holy Spirit and the people of God and eternal life and the word of God and the gift of daily provision and dozens of other wonderful gifts, including a home in heaven one day for all of his people. So generosity fills the heart of Jesus and overflows from his heart into the hearts and lives of his people so that they become generous as well. And what we see here in that first church is freshly redeemed people making choices that reflect a deep love for Jesus and for the new family that Jesus has adopted them into. We see people sharing their possessions with one another. Some of them were selling their stuff on Craigslist and giving the money to the poor and needy among them. Later in chapter 4, we read that some even sold property that they owned and brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, distribute it as you see fit. So true believers in Jesus become generous people. Amen? Generous people. Jesus has given us a new heart with new affections, and the needs of the family start to rise above the desire to accumulate more toys. And funding Jesus' mission starts to overshadow the craving for more creature comforts. You give generously because you want to, because you want to. That's the fruit of the gospel taking root in in our hearts. And so here at New Life, we do encourage each other to be generous like Jesus, to cheerfully give, to support the work of the gospel in and through this church, and to be ready at all times to do love works that bless other people and meet their needs. I got love worked yesterday. One of, my, one of the brothers here that I'm in a discipleship group with came over to my house with his power washer, said, your siding's all green with that green stuff. I'm going to take care of that for you. <laughs> but I said, sure, I'll gladly be a recipient of love works today. It was a blessing to me. It's a beautiful thing. So the big question for us is this. Are you growing in generosity increasingly giving away your time, money, and resources to meet the needs of the family and to further the mission of Jesus. Huge generosity, a mark of that church and hopefully a growing mark of this church as well. That's H. U. C-H-U, under godly leadership. Under godly leadership. In the book of Acts, we're introduced to these men called apostles, and they serve in leadership roles in that church. And if you keep reading, you find that as the Christian movement expanded and new churches were started, the apostles appointed other men with pastoring gifts called elders to oversee each of those new churches that were being started. You also read about people called deacons who assisted the elders in serving Jesus' church. And so what we see is that Jesus gives gifted individuals to his church to lead it, but to lead it under his own leadership and authority. Jesus is called the chief shepherd, so all local church leadership is to be under Jesus, amen, and submitted to Jesus. That's the big idea here. Jesus is our senior leader. The way it's supposed to work is this. Human leaders 
submit to Jesus and follow him as their leader, and then the people in the church follow their human leaders as they follow Jesus so that in the end everybody's following Jesus because he's the leader. That's how it's supposed to work. So there is authority in the church, just as there is in the Holy Trinity. There's authority in the church, delegated authority given to imperfect human leaders who sometimes mess it up and misuse it and abuse it. And when that happens, it's a very sad thing. And it's not pleasing to Jesus when human leaders misuse and abuse the authority they've been given. But when that authority is used in line with Scripture for the good of the people and for the glory of Christ, then that's a good thing, right? So the pattern first laid out in Acts becomes clear in the epistles where we see again teams of qualified men called elders or overseers appointed to govern and to lead local churches. That's the model, and we here at New Life do seek to follow the model that we find in Scripture. Currently, we have seven men who together serve as our team of overseeing elders, and here they are. I wanted you to know who your elders are, good-looking guys up there, and uh, I'm privileged to serve on that team among these godly, mature men who oversee this church. Now, in my role as lead pastor here, I'm not only on that team, but I'm also under their authority, which means that they can instruct me, they can evaluate me as they just did, they can correct me, they can even fire me if they so choose. So humanly speaking, I answer to that group. And knowing that should make you feel safer. It should. Some churches elevate a single leader to a place where he doesn't feel any accountability to anybody. You ever been in a situation like that? And that's dangerous. That's dangerous for them. It's dangerous for the church. We all need to be under human authority and have accountability in our lives. We all do. But you know, there's some people, even some Christians, maybe even you this morning, who think, well, I want to be my own authority. I want to run my own life. I don't, I don't need to answer to anybody else. And if you think that way, my response to you is, do you really think you're that smart? Really? Do you really think that you're not biased to favor yourself in situations? Aren't you prone to justify all of your actions and decisions like the rest of us are? Beware if you think you're beyond needing to be under authority. We all need to have a, a covering of spiritual authority in our lives for our own protection. And so one of our commitments of being a member here at this church is that you agree to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of spiritual leaders here, elders, pastors, small group leaders, not because you have to, but because you want to, knowing that Jesus wants that for your protection. Now, think about leaders for a minute. You've had spiritual leaders in your life. We believe that someone is a leader not so much by virtue of having a position, but by virtue of being called by God, being equipped by the Holy Spirit with leadership giftings, and by virtue of the fact that people want to follow you. As the old proverb says, he who thinks he leads but has no one following him is simply taking a walk. So how do you know if you're a leader? There's somebody following you. And we're blessed to have in this church many, many, many wonderful spiritual leaders. But I want you to know there's going to be a need for more. 
And I'll tell you more about that in a moment. So if you're in a ministry here, or you're in a small group here, and you sense the Lord giving you a desire to lead in that capacity, then I say talk to your ministry leader about it. This is truly something Jesus has for you. Then over time, other people will affirm this in you. They'll say, yeah, I see that in you. Yeah, I see that. Ask your leader what what they see in you, and if they affirm your desire, then ask about the possibility of being mentored into that role and submit to a process where over time, God can bring you into that role of spiritual leadership. See what God does through it. Now, if you're a person who's craving a position because you want to be seen or you want to be known or you want to be highly regarded... And that shows that something is amiss in here, right? And you need to seek out some counsel to find out why that's in your heart. But I'm telling you that the desire, maturity, and skill to lead others spiritually is in demand around here. And our current team of leaders is praying and looking for those whom Jesus is calling into those kinds of roles. So my big question on this one is this. Are you under anybody's spiritual authority in your life? And then second, do you sense a call to grow into spiritual authority? leadership. C-H-U-R. Verse 46 says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So let's call that regular gatherings. What's the mark of a church? People gather together regularly. In fact, the word ekklesia, that Greek word ekklesia, means Gathering, it does not, does not mean bricks and mortar, it does not mean a place, it refers to a congregation, a gathering, an assembly of people who come together. And the pattern of Jesus' church from day one has been to meet together regularly, both in large groups, like we're doing right now, and also in smaller groups. Here, Luke tells us that in that first church, they met together regularly where? What's the first place? In the temple courts. When you hear that phrase, temple courts, think big group. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people could gather in those temple courts. But then it says they also met where? In homes. They broke bread in their homes. So groups of 5, 10, 15, 20 people gathering together also. Large groups and small groups. And so here at New Life, we seek to follow that same pattern, knowing that there's great benefit for Jesus' people to be involved in both. So on weekends, we come together here to celebrate the gospel together in our weekend worship gatherings. And then during the week, we gather in smaller groups to encourage one another and love one another and live in gospel community together and stay on mission together in our neighborhoods. Both of these dimensions of the ecclesia lifestyle are exceedingly important. That's why I'm involved in both, and I believe you need to be as well. To just come to church on weekends and sit in rows here without ever sitting in a circle in somebody's living room, sharing life with a few brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, if you do that, you're missing a vital piece of the ecclesia lifestyle. You're not getting the full experience that Jesus wants you to have. There are things that can happen in that setting that'll never happen in this setting. Now, this is important, okay? Don't, don't. Misunderstand me. Pastor Steve doesn't want us to come to church anymore. No. (laughs) This is a good thing. Coming and sitting in rows, this rhythm, every seven days of gathering with God's 
people, all of them, to celebrate the Lord. But it's not the full experience, and I want the full experience for you. I really do. Jesus wants his people involved in both. That's why Luke gave us this pattern here for us to follow. And so the big concept here, the big theological idea is Jesus' presence, the presence of Jesus, which tells us that when his people come together, he is there with them, right? He's there in their midst. He makes his presence felt when we gather in a very special way. Have you ever felt the presence of Jesus in gathering with God's people? You ever felt that? It's a beautiful thing. So my big question on this point to you is this. Are you gathering regularly in both large worship gatherings and small group meetings to experience the presence of Jesus through his family? Now related to that and really the goal of that, the the C, C C-H-U-R-C, is community. The word community. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the, what? Fellowship. To the fellowship. Have you ever heard the word koinonia? You ever heard that word? Koinonia, it's a Greek word. That's the word here that's translated fellowship. Koinonia, they devoted themselves to the koinonia. The idea is a a community, togetherness, a close-knit community. And what we're talking about when we talk about community with one another is the theological truth of Jesus' reconciliation, that through his death, through his atoning death on the cross, through his victorious resurrection, Jesus not only reconciles people to God vertically, but he reconciles people to each other horizontally. He's torn down the dividing wall of hostility between different groups of people so that we can be one, amen, in his family. We can be one. The old saying says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And human differences that tend to separate people fade into the background in the light of our shared identity in Jesus Christ. So the gospel creates a fellowship, a tight-knit community, bringing people of different backgrounds together to experience Christ. Let me say a couple things about gospel community, okay? Maybe write these down if you found some white space there. First is this, set realistic expectations for what community can be this side of heaven. (laughs) Set realistic expectations. Don't over-idealize your hopes and dreams for Christian community at this stage of Jesus' story. I've been guilty of telling people things like, oh, you've got to get in a small group. It's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. Everyone will love everybody. And then they come back, you know, a couple of months later and say, um, you kind of over-promised and under-delivered. Our small group's actually a little bit messy at times. (laughs) And the truth is, gospel community is sometimes glorious, and at other times it's what? Hard and messy and difficult. The people you sit in a circle with are not yet all that they're going to be one day. They're not now like they will be in heaven. They're not perfect. And they might drive you crazy. And you might drive them crazy because you're not perfect yet either. You're probably driving someone else crazy these days in your small group, perhaps. Maybe you talk too much. Maybe you dominate the conversation whenever you come together and people are rolling their eyes. There she goes again. There he goes again. Maybe no matter what's being talked about, you, you manage to somehow shift the focus back to you. 
Maybe you eat all the cheese dip and make everybody else mad because it's all gone. You're going to frustrate people, and they're going to frustrate you. That's just family life, is it not? That's just life in the family. Sometimes we even fight. But we fight as family, not as enemies. And there's a big difference. When we fight as family, the undergirding conviction is this. I love you. I'm for you. I just think you're off your rocker when it comes to this particular issue. (laughs) So set realistic expectations for how glorious gospel community can be this side of heaven. There are glimpses of it, and it is wonderful at times. But when it gets hard, that doesn't mean it's time to bail out, right? Second, so first set realistic expectations. Second, take the risk to open up your heart. Take the risk to open up your heart. My experience is that some people sit in circles week after week after week but never really open up. Why is that? Fear of being known? Fear of being known and then rejected? Fear of looking foolish? Like I don't really know the Bible very well and I don't want to open my mouth and let people know how ignorant I am of God's word? I love it in our group when someone takes the risk of revealing a little bit more. They pull, pull back a little bit more and let us see a little bit more of who they really are. Take that step. Take that risk. I love it when that happens. There's a quality of community that remains unexperienced as long as we keep fortressing and shielding our hearts from each other. So take the risk to open up your heart. There is wonderful strength and power in community. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard about the power of community came from a vacation my family and I took a number of years ago. We went out to the west coast of the Bay Area, San Francisco area. Got to see all the wonderful attractions out there. It was kind of a side trip. We went to Mere Woods. You ever heard of that? It's where the the California, it's the home of the California redwood trees. My kids were little at the time, and so we went out to Mere Woods, and, and we got out of our car and went over, and we stood there looking up at these massive trees. And they are actually the most massive living things in all of nature. Did you know that? The sequoias, the redwoods. Some of them are 3,000 years old. Some of them are 30 feet in diameter. 30 feet! They've hollowed out a few of them. You can drive your car through the trunk, the hollowed out trunk of these trees. They're huge. Some of them raise 400 feet in the air. That's more than a football field. They're massive. And we were standing there in the shadow of these massive redwood trees just in awe And then we looked down and we saw a little plaque there, and it explained something to us that when I read it it just stunned me, because I would have thought that trees being that massive and raising that high into the sky and being in the Bay Area where there's high winds, I would have thought that their root systems would need to sink way down deep into the ground in order for those trees to stay stable. But you know what? What the plaque told us is that the root systems actually just go down a few feet beneath the surface. They don't sink down hundreds and hundreds of feet. I thought, wow, well, how do they stay stable then? Well, you know what happens just underneath the surface? The roots of the redwood trees seek each other out, and they intertwine and interlock beneath the surface of the ground, and they literally are holding each other up. That's why you only find redwood trees growing in groves. You don't find like an isolated tree here or there. They grow in groves because underneath the surface of the ground, their roots are intertwined and they give strength to each other. And when I read that on that plaque, you know, I'm a pastor, so I thought, man, that is good. I got to take that back. 
So here, you know, 20 years later, I'm telling you, there's strength and power in being connected. And if you're not connected, when the storms of life inevitably blow into your life, what's going to be holding you up? Or are you going to topple over and collapse because you're not, your life is not intertwined with the lives of some other people? Does that make sense? We need this. What a beautiful illustration God has given us in nature to picture for us the strength and power of being connected with one another. We need this. We need this. So my big question for you on this is this. Are you connected in community through active participation in a new life small group? And by the, by the way, this is a great time of year to hop in. A lot of our groups are you know, resuming as the school year has started and... If you'd like to get in a group and you're not sure where to start, our leadership here would love to help you get connected. You know Pastor Jay, right? He would love to help you get connected. You can check that little box on your card that says interested in a small group, or you can come next Wednesday or this coming Wednesday right here to the church to Getting Connected, which will give you a small group experience, and he'll be able to then kind of point you to a group that's a good fit for you. Get in gospel community with a few other people. I'm in it. I hope and pray you will be as well. All right? Our landing gear's down. We're coming in. J-E-S-U-S-C-H-U-R-C. The last one, H. Harvesting through evangelism and church planting. Harvesting through evangelism and church planting. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so the big concept here is Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven to earth on a mission. And then after 33 years here, when he left, he entrusted the continuation of that mission to his people, his church. So Jesus has a mission for his church. You say, well, what is it? Well, back in week one of this series, we sought to define the mission In short, we could say it this way, Jesus' mission for his people is that they would be his witnesses. Do you remember that? Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, he said. To witness of him, to proclaim his gospel and then help those who believe it to grow deeper with Christ and in Christ and to follow Christ and then gather them as, as there are a bunch of new Christians, gather them together in new ecclesias, new churches, to continue the mission together and be Jesus' church. So for us, evangelism, which is witnessing to the gospel, and starting new churches has always been part of our understanding of the mission of the church. Now, my experience, I've been in church for about 40 plus years, okay? And my experience with church is this. A church without a sense of mission is gross, it just stinks. It's just, it gets sour, it gets ingrown. People start getting all upset about stupid stuff that doesn't really matter. Show me a church where people are bickering and fighting about the color of the carpet and who took their seat and who gets to use what room and stuff like that, and I'll show you a church that has lost its sense of being on mission for Jesus Christ. But show me a congregation that's vibrant and alive and energized and depend upon the Holy Spirit, and it's usually because they realize 
that they don't exist for themselves. They know that Jesus has sent them on a mission, and they feel it. And they know it's a big and important mission, one that they cannot do in their own strength, so they're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do it. They know that it's a team effort, not a solo effort. They're on Jesus' mission. So on this topic of our mission, I want to talk with you a few minutes about the direction that our team of elders here believes Jesus is leading this church, okay? You probably know, if you've been around for a while, that planting new churches, new ecclesias, has always been a part of our DNA here, and God's given us the honor over the years, the privilege of having a part in starting a number of churches in and around central Ohio. And we plan to continue doing that because that's part of our mission. But the more recent realization for us is that there are different ways of doing this, and some are better than others. You may know that several of our church plants have closed down recently, and that's caused us to kind of step back and go, whoa, you know, let's, let's ask the Lord. We want to we remain humble and teachable, and so we've asked ourselves, what can we learn from this? One thing that's become apparent to us is that the way that we've structured the relationship between New Life, this church, and these daughter congregations can be improved. There's room for improvement there. What was modeled to us in our training and what we've typically done throughout our history is to start new churches that are basically autonomous and independent of us. Sure, there's been a continuing of relationships between people and the pastors would meet together once a month for lunch to encourage one another and support one another. But our oversight of that new congregation typically ended when that new church launched. Are you with me on this? So we gather people together, let's go, let's do this, guys, and we pour money and resources and people into it and we send them off and we go, God bless you, we love you guys. And, but it's kind of like, God bless you, you know. Go for it. We hope it goes well. And sometimes it has, and sometimes not so much. Over the past 15 years or so, a new model for starting churches has, has emerged that seeks to address the weaknesses of that model. My predecessor here, uh, Dave Early, was actually exploring this model 10 years ago, so it's not really new to us. But perhaps we've just seen more clearly in recent months the potential benefit of this model to all involved. It's called the multi-campus church or the multi-site church. You say, what in the world is that? Sounds like an insect or something. Well, in a nutshell, it's the concept that one church can actually meet in multiple locations and still be one church with the same elder board, the same mission and vision, the same budget, the same staff. One church, multiple locations. Let me explain it more. Instead of being a separate entity with its own staff and mission and vision, this model, the new congregation, remains a part of the original church. It's not us and them, it's us and us. It's all us. Oversight of that new congregation remains in the hands of the elder team at the original campus, the original church. A few years ago when I first explored this concept in depth, I thought that it might just be a fad. I'd heard that a number of churches were doing this, but I wasn't sure that it had staying power. And beyond that, I wanted to know if it was biblical, because frankly, I don't want to do anything or initiate or instigate anything that's forbidden in God's Word, right? 
And, you know, it would be good if our preferred strategy for evangelizing and planning the gospel in other communities actually came out of the Bible (laughs) that we say we believe. And so that's what my study break this summer focused on, researching and exploring the book of Acts and this multi-campus church idea and its biblical roots. Through a lengthy process of prayer and research and discussion, our elder team, those seven men you saw earlier, that team is now unanimous in embracing multi-site as New Life's primary strategy for planting the gospel in other communities going forward. We found it to be very well represented in the scriptures. We believe this structure of remaining connected can provide safety, can be a safeguard in the future when future challenges come. You need to know that our our burden to send people out to plant the gospel in other communities and see lives transformed there by Jesus is as strong as it's ever been. But now we feel more confident about how to go about that in a healthier way. As elders, we've also been praying for quite a while about where exactly Jesus wants to send us next. Where, Jesus? You're the head of the church. You're the chief shepherd. The gospel is your gospel. The mission is your, your mission. Where do you want us to go next? We've been seeking him about that. We're not exactly sure, but the elders wanted me to let you know that two of the communities that we're praying about are the communities of Whitehall and Blacklick. And the elders are not only praying themselves, they're asking you to pray about that as well. That this would be a a, a whole church effort to spread the gospel. That we would have ears to hear the voice of our Lord directing us in this matter. So can you just see in your mind's eye some families living in those communities or some single adults living in those communities who don't know Jesus but desperately need to? I mean, they're living there, they're going about their lives, they're going to work. Maybe they're struggling, maybe they're not, but they don't know Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, the King, the Master, the friend of sinners. They don't know Him. And how could their lives be transformed if if a gospel-centered congregation came right into their community with people who have a missionary mindset, who live in the community, who are saying, I want to reach my neighbors for Jesus. And look, my church has moved closer to me where I live and now has a presence in my own neighborhood. Can you see the possibilities? And again, it's not us and them. It's us and us. It's we together doing this. If you live in those communities, could you see yourself as a missionary to your neighbors who need Jesus? Think about the possibilities. In about a month here, we're going to be having an emphasis on prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting, particularly for gospel impact, for the gospel to have impact personally and in our families, in our community, in neighboring communities, in our nation, in the world. And during that season, I'm going to challenge you and we're going to challenge each other to pray for the leading of Jesus for our church and where he wants us to go next and plant a gospel-centered community. But I can tell you this, wherever it is, this effort is going to open up all kinds of places for people to rise up and use their gift and serve, both here and in the new congregations. 
Does that make sense? So some people here are going to be a part of these new congregations, and their spot here, the place where they served here, is going to be vacated. So there's going to be a need for new people to rise up into those roles here, as well as people serving in these new congregations that are springing up in other communities. And so could you see yourself being used by God in some capacity, either here or in one of these new campuses, maybe a greeter, a greeter. I mean, are you a warm, friendly person who can make people feel welcome and at home and lower their anxieties? Maybe a small group leader. We're going to need dozens and dozens more small group leaders. A prayer partner, a children's ministry leader or worker or servant. An intercessory prayer partner walking through those neighborhoods, praying for those families and those homes. Before we ever go there, it's been covered, blanketed in prayer. Or maybe you can just make a mean cup of coffee, <laughs> and you're good at it. There's going to be a place, a role for everyone, and this is going to be a huge team effort, huge team effort, worship team member. Can you see yourself being used by God? And that brings me back to where we began four weeks ago when I wielded my trusty surgeon's scalpel <laughs> And I looked at you and asked you, what kind of person does Jesus use? The master surgeon, when he's going to go to work in someone's heart and life, and we know that Jesus uses people in the lives of people, what kind of person does he use? And I said, just like a master surgeon, we look for an instrument that's clean, not corroded, but clean, sharp, and available. Right there, right there. Clean, sharp, and available. That's who Jesus is going to use. And so I'm asking you, as new lifers with a heart for this church who believe in what we're doing, seeing now that our elders are directing us outward into other communities now to start new gospel-centered congregations where there's going to be a need for everyone to be clean, sharp, and available to be used by God for whatever Jesus might call you to do. Will you commit yourself to being ready for that, to be getting prepared for that? That's what Jesus is calling us to do. Okay? So let's bow our heads together in prayer. I want you to think about that for a minute. Some of you used to be used by God years ago, and your view is, well, I kind of put in my time. <laughs> you know what? You still have something to offer. You do. Some of you think, you know, your, your confidence is low, and you think, I don't, I, don't, I don't got a whole lot to offer. No, the Holy Spirit has gifted you in some way. Would you just surrender in your hearts to him and say, okay, Lord, <laughs> okay, I don't know what this means, but I'm, I'm going to be clean, sharp, and available so that when you call me, I'm ready. If you would commit yourself to that this morning, just by the grace of God and through sensing the Spirit talking to you, if you'd say, Steve, I love Jesus Church too, and I'm committing myself today to being clean, sharp, and available to Jesus for whatever role he might want me to have in carrying out his mission through this church. Would you just lift your hand if that's you today? I'm willing, available. Jesus, see, see these hands. Call people. Call them. You can put your hands down. I wonder how many of you just feel something blocking you. There's an impediment there. There's, there's something blocking you from surrendering totally to Jesus. And I don't know what that is, you know? your past, 
maybe you're just consumed with other interests, other hobbies, other things, and it's just, it's not where you live your life, you know? Man, I would encourage you. I would encourage you. Maybe just come and let a prayer partner pray with you about whatever that blockage is, whatever that obstacle is that keeps you from feeling like God can use you. Jesus, thank you. As a church family, as an ecclesia, we say thank you for giving us in your word a pattern, a model, a prototype that we can look to and glean these timeless principles to follow you and be your church here in our context, in our day and age. Use us, Lord. Use us, I pray. We've got this message. We're carriers of it. Use us in neighboring communities. Show us where you want us to go next. And give us the grace, every one of us in this room, to be clean, sharp, and available for you to use in the lives of other people. We know that's your plan and purpose. We know that's where the joy is. I pray that you would um, cause to crumble every impediment that's causing or keeping people from surrendering fully to you. We worship you now. We worship you now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond to the word through worship and also through being prayed with. Our prayer partners are here to pray with you about whatever the Spirit of God's talking to you about. But I would say in particular that that blockage, that impediment that's keeping you from fully surrendering to Jesus and letting him use you. Okay, So stand with me. Let's worship together. Let's pray for and with one another.